Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's educational series. Today we're very lucky to have a brilliant options researcher, my friend Paul Borishan, who's from the University of Miami Business School, has come on today to discuss a question that's really been brewing in the financial circles. Should options be classified as their own asset class? Has the time come? Paul, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, that's right. I think in a way options are sort of having their, their heyday. Of course, a lot of people are remarking about how active option trading has become since uh, the COVID market crash and subsequent rebound. And I think a lot of attention has been drawn to uh, the VIX, obviously, but also, for example, the call-put ratio, how many people are uh, buying one or the other type of option as people sort of try to uh, figure out whether there's any information to be gained uh, about what might actually happen uh, a bit down the road, or at least what people are willing to speculate on. Without a doubt, you know, this entire COVID situation was really, you know, like a metaphorical meteor hitting our economy. And so what we've created here are just endless pools of data and ideas that need to be researched by academics such as yourself to you know, come up with questions about our knowledge of how our world works. And options are one thing that have really come into focus, especially with what's happened with COVID. The market's going down by almost half and then rebounding to be you know, nearly positive. It, it, it's really unbelievable. Yesterday, my students were lucky enough to have a guest lecture by Boaz Weinstein, the founder of Saba Capital. And Boaz, who's up nearly 100% this year, you know, is, is talking about you know, Wendy's stock, for instance. Wendy's, in a span of weeks, went from a $25 stock to a $7 stock, and then now it's back to a $25 stock. People had just no information about what was going on. People thought it was the end of Wendy's. They didn't realize that even in the COVID situation, people were, were buying their hamburgers. And what you had with the options markets were an entirely you know, unbridled jungle, if you will. Certainly to classify them as part of the equity asset class, to me is just wrong. And I've spoken to a number of my friends and smartest colleagues, and they all agree options should definitely be their own asset class. You know, uh, it should be an official recognition that you know, honestly should come very soon. So let's talk about your recent paper on uh, the you wrote, actually you, you have two papers coming out. Do you want to start talking about uh, it? You know, both of them. Of course. So actually, one of them sort of speaks to this idea, just, you know, who trades options? Uh, why might they trade them? And what can we learn from, from their trades? Mm. Uh, which is one about the term structure of the third moment of the option implied distribution for stocks, the, the skewness, um, which is forthcoming in Journal of Empirical Finance. And there we find sort of an interesting thing that I think helps make more sense of just what uh, might be going on in the option market, simply because we actually see that in the nearer term options, uh, skewness is actually positively related to future stock performance. In other words, it seems like people uh, can actually predict that the distribution might have a big, let's say, right tail and therefore returns might be outsize positive or big left tail and returns might be outsize negative. And 
Well, that seems to be borne out in subsequent returns. Whereas if we look at sort of the longer uh, maturity, say options closer to a year uh, to expiration, uh, there actually the relation reverses. And it seems like uh, it's more of like a lottery betting type of investment than where options with the biggest implied skewness. I'm going to stop you in your direct there because you mentioned lottery and betting. And we have to touch the retail aspect of this. Mm -hmm. Do you morally and ethically feel that it's right to allow retail traders to partake in the options markets? Do you feel that that's an you know, ethically sound decision? Hmm. I mean, so I'm a CFA charter holder and we actually do place a strong emphasis on sort of the ethical uh, guidance of market participants. Um, and I mean, neither the Institute nor I personally, and of course I'm not speaking on behalf of the Institute here, uh, really has a position on what asset classes individuals should or shouldn't be allowed to trade. Yeah. I also think that simply the sort of logistics of prohibiting certain yeah, the, the, people from the, accessing certain classes would be challenging. You know, Rebellion's customers span the gauntlet from you know, the largest to the very smallest, both retail and institutional. But I have been surprised by how, the, you know, really the proliferation of options trading among our you know, retail client base. It's, it's really a, you know, quite surprising to me. I, I, uh, I, I did not expect it. And options have certainly grown a lot since COVID, as, mm -hmm. as people have seen, you know, the power and the potential of options. I, I think there was a, a huge ignorance about options that have, you know, that ignorance has started to wash away the last few years, you know, as, you know, the market has gotten themselves better educated, but still, you know, one must ask, you know, how, how responsible is it? But there's nothing we can do. You can't prohibit people, you know, it's, and even with, you know, asset managers, what can they do? If a client says, I want to buy XYZ or I'll fire you, what, what is the broker going to do? So it's, it's, a, it's a really tough, tough situation, uh, definitely a slippery slope. I, 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 by the way, completely agree with you. Without a doubt, I think that you know, volatility in options very much is a soothsayer for the movement of the markets and, the, and that specific asset class. Options are used by generally the largest, most sophisticated players most of the time. So whether it's JetBlue wanting to hedge something or you know, Saba Capital wanting to hedge a position the, the larger players and options tend to know what they're doing and they tend to have an agenda that uh, supersedes, you know, the shorter term aspects. But, you know, with markets that have gotten as volatile as they have, really, the S&P has been like a penny stock this year. You know, when you, when you look at the volatility of it, it's, it's just unbelievable. Right. And in a way, that sort of speaks to the difficulty of, let's say, restricting people from access to these highly skewed payoffs. Um, look at the retail enthusiasm for something like Hertz. A bankrupt company is, or a near bankrupt company is effectively just an option, right? So even if you prohibit, you know, equity derivatives, you still have very similar types of payoffs that I think arouse a very sort of natural behavioral enthusiasm from retail investors precisely because of these lottery-like characteristics. No, the lottery-like characteristics definitely make options a, a, a much harder to understand uh, asset class, you know, one that takes a lot more to be studied. 
how do you feel about Myron Scholes' work with Black Scholes? Do you think that's still relevant in today's world? Uh, well, obviously, this is still sort of a core part of the business school curriculum, and I think it's a great entry point into uh, sort of a discussion of modeling option prices. Do you think there's kind of an attrition rate to the relevance of it, or do you think it's going to kind of remain a keystone, if you will? Or I, I guess that's a tough question. I, I apologize, but and, and your thoughts would be lovely. Yeah, it's hard to speculate. So you know, let's sort of analogize to the CAPM. Um, you know, everybody knows there's big problems with the CAPM. Uh, there's been a wealth of work about additional risk factors since then. Ways to tweak the CAPM, but still, in you know, in schools, we teach the CAPM, and I don't expect that to go away anytime real soon. And I expect the same with, with Black Shoals. You know, of course, you can modify the sort of option process to include jumps, stochastic volatility, uh, maybe different interest rates, all of these things. The Black Shoals, of course, formula uh, doesn't allow you to do. But once you sort of get the basic idea of it, then you can move on to this more sophisticated stuff, I think. No, that's a great point, Paul. It really gets to the heart of what education is in finance. Is, you know, teaching a student to understand the core principles so that they can modify finance, you know, and, and kind of, you know, create their own ability to, to cause alpha and necessitate their job, whether it be banking or research or you know, portfolio management. So, uh, yeah, no, a, a definitely a great point. I'm, I'm curious about Miami Business School. Are you guys focusing more on options? Is the course offering growing there? Uh, well, so especially last year, we had a tremendous uh, a number of students enroll in a master's program, and I taught the mathematics of financial derivatives then. And uh, this year we'll have a smaller, of course, group simply because of the exigencies of the pandemic, but I expect that we'll still have the same sort of offerings. Um, and there's always a steady enthusiasm for derivatives, simply because, of course, among professionals, uh, there's always going to be a place for people who are formally trained in their pricing. And we talk both about futures and options, of course. But I think in a way, maybe even what's going on in the markets today may lead to sort of a more, a greater savviness about derivatives, even among the lay population, so to speak. I agree. Oh, no, I definitely agree. And I think that's one of the great reasons that there should be a push to make options a defined individual asset class so that the knowledge does disseminate you know, throughout. But uh, speaking of throughout, the global economy has really kind of taken a turn to a place that I love to talk about and I've written about extensively at Rebellion, which is, a, for me, a tale of two economies. You know, it's, it's, it's really personified by, uh, you know, a picture my wife showed me the other day when we were driving, you know, one store closing, one store expanding. And you've got, you know, these really these two economies where one is dying, struggling to survive on death's door, while the other is seeing record profits. Firms like Moody's and Coupa Software have never had it so good, while obviously all the obvious retailers and hospitality firms are just trying to spare every last dime. Do you see that to continue to play out? What are your thoughts? Yeah, and this is actually a great sort of thing that one can observe from the options market. There's even right now firms out there, if I look at the Bloomberg terminal with 
you know, volatilities well over 100 and others with volatilities well in their 30s. And usually, of course, there's pretty strong clustering. So the big firms, uh, especially in the tech sector, is sort of like a quality uh, cluster will have very low volatilities compared to almost everybody else. And the sort of general cluster of the primary casualties of the pandemic, of course, will have uh, the highest volatilities. And in a way, I think that that is what's cool about options, sort of how complete of a picture it can paint for you about, um, you know, what people might expect for certain sectors of the economy. Because for all the sort of talk that we've had about the VIX, in a way, I think the VIX paints with an overly broad brush. You know, it's just the volatility of the S&P with tech and with retail um, and with energy all in there. So, you know, when energy is having a sell-off and people rotate into tech, well, the VIX itself as sort of an average of those might not pick up too much. <laughs> but then if you sort of look at it by sector, or as I do in a lot of my research, actually stock by stock, um, there you actually get a much more sort of complete sense of what the market actually thinks about the prospects um, of a particular firm or group of firms. I, I completely agree. It's actually, a, it makes me think about a paper. You know, the Z-score is a very widely used score for looking at potential bankruptcies. And it's something that Boaz Weinstein brought up yesterday with my students. And it makes me wonder, about a paper comparing the Z-score to implied volatility in the options market for foretelling bankruptcies. And I wonder which would have a higher accuracy. That's, you know, I think that's, that, would, that would be an interesting thing to look at. I think so much of the implied volatility in the options markets are, are, are really a betting game right now on the retail bankruptcies in the next 12 to 24 months. So many firms, you know, they have so many months worth of cash and, it's a question of when this, you know, uh, virus will see some type of, you know, globally accepted medical treatment. Uh, you know, obviously it'd be wonderful if we could have a vaccine, but, you know, medical or, or a significant medical treatment that's accepted. But until that happens, many firms are in a countdown. It's, it's, it's a, I don't know of any other time that has ever been like this. It's really, uh, you know, an earth post you know, COVID that's, uh, you know, like, like, really like a, the dinosaurs and a gigantic asteroid hitting. I mean, it, it, this was an economic asteroid and the ripples will be felt for you know, generations. And the capital movement in terms of, you know, who has it and who will get it, very extreme, uh, really. So, such such an unbelievable hurricane we've seen uh, come about. So that's right. And I mean, I think a lot of the sort of common wisdom on this seems to suggest that the big firms, the ones that really can't survive this, will uh, be the winners. And that may not even be that that great. Yeah. Um, you know, the restaurant chains will survive. Mom and pop restaurants will close. And I think that sort of paradigm could very well extend. Um, to other firms, and this you see in implied volatilities as well, that the smaller the firm, the, the higher the, the implied vol these days. But also, we're, we're talking about the necessity for more data, quicker, faster. In fact, one of the research projects we're doing in Rebellion Research is using now casting on you know, live daily retail data. 
and to see, you know, not only could that have called COVID, but can we use that going forward to help rebellion move in and out of industries you know, faster than we would have otherwise? So that's, that's a, a huge question. You know, now casting definitely presents a lot of exciting possibilities. And Professor Marcos Lopez de Prada, who is one of my favorite uh, colleagues from Cornell, and uh, I, just, I guess you can call him a friend at this point, has written extensively on now casting and it's fantastic. And I highly recommend also he's written some very good books too. Also mm -hmm. Igor Halpern is another friend of mine. Uh, Igor is a very good friend. I love Igor and he's written extensively. Actually, he just came out with a book with Matthew Dixon on reinforcement learning. I highly recommend that as well. So uh, anyway, well, uh, Paul, do you want to leave our viewers with any parting words today? Well, so I would simply say that when I started in grad school and I did my thesis on sort of option implied probabilities of, of bankruptcy, at the time there wasn't that much work done on it now. And I think now, given all this enthusiasm for, well, first of all, as you say, sort of more real time data from any alternate source besides just sort of the ticker tape for prices, uh, but also this interest in retail and option investments I really do think options are sort of having their, their heyday, and I hope I this will extend to um, academics, and we'll see more and more research about uh, really the novel and fairly profound information that one can elicit from, from options prices about the macroeconomy, individual stocks, um, as well as industries. You know, they say the wise man knows what he doesn't know, and I think that's probably why options scare me, because I know how ignorant I am and how really, getting back to that term jungle, how large the jungle of options really, really is. So anyway, uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon, Paul. Thank you so much and uh, stay safe and be well. It's a pleasure, Alex, you too.